Spend a bit of time in Israel, and you'll notice that in addition to Hebrew and Arabic, you'll hear a lot of Russian. That makes sense, Israel is full of folks from the former Soviet Union. And that being the case, this episode I want to investigate what that means for Israeli policy towards the war in Ukraine. Throw into that equation Iran's role in the conflict, and I think we've got quite a conundrum on our hands. Welcome back to the Bear Market Brief. I'm your host, Aaron, although this episode is going to sound a little bit like The Continent, a series I did last year investigating how Russia's war in Ukraine impacts policy and security in Europe, except obviously we're not talking about Europe this time. Joining us today is Milan Cherny. Milan is a researcher on Israel-Russia relations and Russian security policy. His commentary and writing has appeared in publications such as The Insider, Riddle Russia, Le Monde, and NATO Strategic Communication Center. Milan holds a master's degree in Russian and Eastern European studies from the University of Oxford and a bachelor's degree in war studies from King's College London. He is fluent in English, French, Russian, and Hebrew. We covered a lot of angles here, and it turns out that Middle Eastern politics are pretty tricky. Let's jump in. Good to have you with us today. Thanks a lot for having me, Aaron. So um, we're recording this at a very, very interesting time in Israeli politics, both uh, foreign and domestic. But before we get into all of that, uh, could you introduce yourself to the audience a little bit? So I'm currently working for an Israeli um, high-tech company called ActiveFence, where I'm working on matters related to human exploitation in the context of the war. I'm tracking various forms of online manifestation of exploitation, ranging from prisoners of war, smuggling, illegal adoption, sex trafficking, and so on. Uh, at the same time, I'm freelancing for different, different uh, outlets, both in French and in Russian, notably for The Insider and for Le Monde, where I'm a frequent commentator. Very interesting, and a lot of, a lot of uh, threads to, to pull there. But let's start at a very, very high level. I think there's really two pieces of this episode. Sorry to, to step back here. There's the, the policy piece and the people piece. We're going to start with the policy. So if you had to sum up Israel's Ukraine policy since the war started in a few sentences, how would you describe it? So I think Israel's policy since the start of the war has been characterized by a desire not to get involved, uh, for the most part, a desire not to break its ties with Russia and at the same time maintain good relations with the West and the United States. So this means in practice that it has been uh, engaging in humanitarian action, ending out uh, humanitarian supply uh, in Ukraine to um, underline its support for for Ukraine, it's like in a, it's empathy with with Ukrainian, but at the same time, there's this idea that it's not our war, that it's not Israel's role to engage in the supply of uh, military equipment, and it's not following the West in supplying uh, military equipment to to Ukraine to uh, justify this stance. Uh, Israel often points to to Syria, of course, and to Russian. Russian presence in Syria to indicate that, okay, Russia is at our border, we cannot engage in uh, support for Ukraine because then it could arm our interest in the region. So in a way, it's really a desire to balance, as I said, between showing some support, some kind of support for the West, but at the same time, maintain good relation with with Russia. Uh, 
in a way, it's very similar to the relation that other Middle Eastern states have adopted toward, toward uh, Russia, and notably Gulf states that have also tried to, to keep some kind of balance between, between the West and, and Russia. Uh, what Israel wants uh, is to basically maintain the status quo before the war, where Israel had good ties with Ukraine, good ties with Russia, and where it could speak to both actors without any kind of issue and not putting its interest at, um, at risk. Very interesting. And a lot, of, a lot of angles I think we can talk about there. So as far as I'm aware, Israel's had a fair few elections in the last, in the last couple of years. Has Israel's policy, I know there's, there was a change in government during the war so far. So you had Lapid, who was, I think, safe to say center-left, reasonably gave way to the latest Netanyahu administration, who is, I think, safe to say, and not trying to point any political fingers, but like right-wing, I think, safe to say, this government. Did we see any evolution of of policy over the kind of change in government? So since uh, February 24, 2022, we uh, had in Israel two governments, but actually tw- three prime ministers, Naftali Bennett, Yair Lapid, and uh, now Benjamin Netanyahu. As uh, The government, uh, the Bennett-Lapid government was, as you said, center-left, but also with some right-wing elements, such as uh, Naftali Bennett. When Bennett was prime minister, um, Yair Lapid was um, minister in charge of foreign affairs. And there was kind of a distinction between the two men where Naftali Bennett wanted to play kind of a role of a mediator uh, to stay neutral. He went to, to, to Moscow to meet uh, with Vladimir Putin and uh, he had calls with, uh, with Zelensky to really portray himself as, as a mediator. At the same time, Yair Lapid was slowly taking a more um, pro-Ukrainian stance, I would say, by notably condemning the Russian war crime in, in Butcha and clearly pointing the figure at Russia. Even if there was no military support, there was a vocal condemnation by Lapid of Russian action. When Lapid became prime minister, this continued, this threat continued. There was a lot of condemnation at the level of the prime minister but no military support. It was still just humanitarian support. Uh, with Benjamin Netanyahu, well, first of all, it's important to precise that the current uh, government has largely, fo- largely focused itself on domestic matters due to the current uh, political crisis in Israel. We can go back to this um, maybe later. And we will. <laughs> and so Netanyahu, Bibi, used to portray himself in the past as a friend of Putin. He really tried to show that uh, he was a friend of Putin. There was some huge poster in Tel Aviv showing Netanyahu shaking hand with Putin. Uh, with him coming back to power, there was a big uh, question mark over what policy he would, he would uh, choose. One of the first calls made by his foreign minister, Eli Cohen, was to Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister. And this was interpreted as a sign that uh, Bibi would continue having good ties with Putin. But actually, it's largely a continuation of the past government. Uh, in the sense that humanitarian um, aid continued to be delivered. The only noticeable change between Lapid and Netanyahu is in terms of uh, condemnation of the war crimes, as uh, the current government is not pointing the finger to, to Russia. Even when Eli Cohen went to Kiev, he did not mention Russia's responsibility in the war, and he really tried to avoid pointing the finger at Moscow. Uh, and currently, there are still some meetings between Russian officials and Israeli officials at the ambassador level. So this shows that the ties continue to be um, 
maintain between the two states. Sounds complicated. I mean, not that I would expect anything less for Middle Eastern politics. One of my favorite online jokes is a chart of Middle Eastern relationships where it just draws lines between every power for who doesn't like and does like each other. And it's <laughs> understandably a mess. And actually wanted to ask about another power in the region. I think there's a, another piece of the geopolitical equation there. So Russia has invaded Ukraine. Israel's trying to stay, it sounds like, relatively neutral because Russia is a military presence in Syria and Israel doesn't want Russia to exacerbate kind of the situation on its borders. But another player in Syria and in the Middle East and in Ukraine is Iran, which is arming actors in Syria and Lebanon and arming Russia to attack Ukraine. I think that's trying to say that without kind of getting too much into <laughs> into the politics. I think that's fairly neutral description. Let's let's hope, given that the subjects matter. But how does Iran's role in the war educate Israel's kind of reaction or, or position? So Iran plays a very specific role in Israel domestic discourse. I would say constantly, Iran is used by various political actors for a variety of um, of purposes by the current government to say that our main threat is Iran, that the protests, for instance, should stop and that we should focus on Iran. So similarly, in the context of the crisis uh, you know, of the war in Ukraine, Israeli politicians have looked at Iran and notably at the uh, provision of uh, Shahid drone to, to Iran, to, to Russia that are currently striking in, in Ukraine. So when um, Foreign Minister Li Cohen went to, to Kiev when he was meeting with a Ukrainian official. He only wanted to talk about Iran. It was as if the war was not between Ukraine and Russia, but between Ukraine and Iran. And this was very interesting because it shows the focus that Israeli officials have in the, the discourse they have with the Ukrainian counterpart. So clearly the focus uh, for Israel when it sees a war, it's Iran, the role that Iran is playing in the war, but also how uh, Russia could leave more place for Iran in Syria if uh, Israel was to engage more uh, strongly in support of, um, of Ukraine. So when we are looking at Israel's policy in the war, we, it's important to understand that it's not driven by Ukraine itself, by humanitarian concern but by Iran. Very, very interesting. Curious. I think that covers enough of the geopolitical foreign policy angle. As, as you mentioned and I mentioned, we still have something to cover with the uh, current political crisis domestically. But I think in order to get there, we need to talk more about the people. Who are the people in Israel? And why I wanted to talk about this episode is because between you know, Soviet Jews and more recent immigrants, there's a lot of Russian speakers, be that from Ukraine or Russia and Israel. I certainly, when I'm in Israel, fall back on my Russian with uh, almost as much frequently frequency rather as, as I use my Hebrew. Um, and I think there's kind of an interesting societal angle here. So I guess question one, I think it's fairly common knowledge. There's a lot of Soviet Jews in Israel. What did they have to say about the war? What where, What is their role in all this? So as you said, there's a huge Russian-speaking population in Israel. They represent um, 18% of the population, 1.5 million approximately. Uh, it's important to divide between, I would say, the 90s uh, Russian Jews, Russian-speaker Jews, so the, the uh, Russian-speaking Jews that made Aliyah, that came to Israel uh, at the, after the fall of the Soviet Union, 
and the Russian Jews that made Aliyah uh, in the 2000 after Putin took power. So in general, uh, if we want to have like a general picture of this community, they are largely opposed to, to the Russia's war on Ukraine. Um, the reason for that, I think, is that they don't often feel particularly, let's say, Russian, Ukrainian, Belarusian, but they like identify more as like Soviet Jew, especially for the people that came in the 90s. They often have a large uh, number of relatives in Ukraine, in Belarus, given the, the, the historical presence of, of Jew in this, um, in this country. Um, if we are talking about the second generation, so let's say the son of the people that came in the 90s, they feel Israeli and they, have, um, gener they are generally not really interested in the world. They don't see it as something close to them. For the um, Russian-speaker Jews that came in the 2000s, they are often called the Putinalia. They came for political reasons, often to flood uh, repression. They are more politicized. And of course, they also um, oppose the war. On politics, in terms of like domestic Israeli politics, the um, 90s, Russian Jews are right-wing, conservative, and usually are not do not have like a protest culture per se, and they are not used to to go out in the street and to protest against the current government. But at the same time, they are against a religion. They are they are against um, the imposition of religion in civil affairs, and which means that the currently they are opposed to to the um, governmental coalition led by Benjamin Netanyahu given the large number of very um, ultra-Orthodox um, religious elements in this, in this government. So they are currently moving towards the center, toward Lapid in, in great numbers, as well as uh, continuing to support uh, Avigor Lieberman, which is historically the candidate of the Russian-speaking Jews in, in Israel. Yeah, like, like I've said at several points in this episode to, to you, listener, a lot of complicated, lot of complicated angles here. Uh, it's the Middle East. You wouldn't expect any less. So those are the kind of incumbent is not the right word, but those are the kind of two generations that are in Israel or came to Israel prior to the war. What about, well, the Ukrainians are, are refugees, I think, in the most concrete sense. Um, there's Russians who were displaced because of the politics. Are we seeing Ukrainians coming? Is there a Ukrainian community? And what about the Russians who have sought refuge elsewhere? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. Um, Russian and Ukrainian since the start of the war have come in great number. We are talking about uh, 60,000 that made uh, Aliyah that came to Israel in this past year. But in reality, um, much more than that came because many Russian, Ukrainian, Belarusian already had Israeli passport. Uh, somewhere in the house, um, on the shelf, under the bed, I would say, and they decided to use it after the start of the war and to move uh, definitely to, to Israel for, for political reasons, as you said. There are not so many Ukrainian because of the cost of living in, in Israel. They can freely travel and work in Europe, and they often prefer to do so than co to come to Israel and be faced with a very high cost of living. Uh, and also, of course, the, the language barrier is, is an issue for Russian, Ukrainian, and so on. Uh, so fitting in take time, you need to learn the language. The cost of living is another barrier. This community, for now, is not engaging so much in political issue, I would say, in domestic Israeli political issue, due to first, well, they first have to fit in, find a job, learn the language, and these are things that, of course, take time. And they have generally a lack of political knowledge regarding Israel. They did not choose to come here for the most part. 
And even people that were very, very politically active in, in Russia are telling me that, well, you know, in Russia, you have one candidate, it's easy. Here in Israel, we have 15 political parties, right, with so many uh, political game involved, and this makes uh, the learning curve quite high. But uh, at the same time, there are some other new migrants that are engaging in the protest because they have a desire to learn Israeli politics. They feel that, well, in Russia, um, the country, the politics was stolen from them. And here they want to, to fight, to integrate and to really be engaged in, in Israeli domestic politics, even uh, if it's quite complicated. So would, would you say that there's, I don't know if diaspora is the right word, if they had citizenship in in some cases. Would you say there's kind of increasing levels of political mobilization among Russians who came to Israel? I think one of the things, sorry to to, to, to step back here, is uh, at least in the States with Soviet Jews, and I think you, you got at this, there's large communities, you know, Brighton Beach, et cetera, but never really politically organized like other groups that... Right like say Armenians who who were able to kind of associate politically. Are you seeing more of an association is what I'm trying to ask? Politically, uh, I would not say so. There's always been, as I said, Avigor Lieberman, which is like the candidate of, of Russian speakers in, in Israel. But there's not really large scale Russian political movement. So as I hinted, there's large protests taking place in Israel currently. And there are small groups organizing like inside the protest movement for Russian speakers. But this movement are really not taking off. Very few people are actually going to this event, sadly. Uh, culturally, there's definitely a community forming in terms of like cinema, uh, art, bookshop opening, and so on. This is definitely uh, something that's, uh, that's happening. And I think that's uh, because of the um, cultural background of the new Russian migrant who are often from uh, Moscow, St. Petersburg, involved already in like Russian culture. Most, you know, most people in, in Moscow, St. Petersburg that are involved in like theater, cinema and so on, have like a, a grandfather who is Jewish potentially, and then they can come to, to Israel. So, and then they're trying to like make this revive in, in Israel. And this is, I guess, because this is kind of the St. Petersburg, Moscow community, kind of a much more liberally aligned inherently liberally aligned but also because they left russia i think also just is selecting for people who are exactly exactly um, they were already often politically involved before uh, the war and then they came here uh, and they are like from this elite as you said this urban intellectual elite and they make the, they decided to to flee so obviously it makes sense that they are against the war, against Putin. So one question that I wanted to ask. So it sounds like these Russians who have come to Israel are much more involved around Ukraine than Israeli domestic politics, or at least the domestic crisis happening now? Yeah, I would say so. The thing is that most of these Russian speakers did not have the desire to come for the most part prior to the war. They came here. And they're still keeping an eye in Russia and Ukraine with like somehow the hope that one day they'll be able to come back. So I think that for now they have been, they came like in the last six months, the last seven months, the last year at most. They are not really integrated in the society yet, right? They are like just making the first step in Israel. And most of them feel quite, I would say, shy to engage in domestic Israeli politics when you don't speak the language. And I think that's 
that's a fair point. Coming to a country is very difficult. Coming to Israel is even harder, I would say. Yeah, I guess as a potentially final question, I know part of the reason I wanted to talk to you today, you're fairly well connected with these communities. If you could share any anecdotes, or it doesn't have to be a long story, but anecdotes about how people are integrating or not, what's easy, what's hard, uh, what what is it like just for, for listeners to better understand? Yeah, so actually I went to this event before uh, the last Israeli election that was organized uh, by the center that wanted to like teach Israeli politics to new mi- migrants, right? And it was very interesting because this event was supposed to last one hour just presenting the different candidate, uh, show how the very procedure of voting work in Israel. But this event ended up lasting five hours because not only Israeli politics uh, was being taught, but politics in itself, right? So how does a coalition work? What does it mean to choose a party either based on like a calculus, which one will be able to enter coalition or based only on like your own ideas or your own values? So all of these questions that are like very kind of simple had to be taught. So I think this was very interesting and reveals a lot the challenges that some of these new migrants have to face. And also like the conflict, uh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict was also a key question. And um, most of these new migrants had really no idea about what was going on, what was the West Bank, uh, what was Gaza, what was like the zone A of the West Bank, the zone B, the zone C. And these questions that are like seem very um, kind of simple for, for Israeli was required a lot of effort. So I think uh, this really shows a, the learning curve and the difficulty to engage in Israeli politics for most of this new uh, community. Yeah, I think that's uh, based on my familiarity with uh, with kind of the political situation and uh, kind of sense of identity, I guess, in that part of the world. Coming to a far more chaotic and unpredictable system must be uh, a really, a really large adjustment. I actually, if I can share an anecdote of my own with my Ukrainian teacher, uh, was having a lesson while I was in Israel last, and she was looking at a map of Israel, which she wasn't familiar with, and kind of scrolled onto the West Bank and said, oh, is this part of Israel? And I said, Thank oh, you're you. asking very complicated questions. How 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 much time do you have to, to get into this? <laughs> exactly. I think that covers all of the ground I had today. So I want to thank you for, for joining the podcast and for your, your thoughts here. Thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure. Thanks to Milan for joining and to you, listener, as well. So what do you think? Get in touch at the Twitter handle at Bear Market Brief and be sure to sign up for the BMB Russia and Eurasia newsletter. This podcast and BMB Russia and Eurasia are initiatives of the Foreign Policy Research Institute, that's FPRI, a nonpartisan think tank based in Philadelphia. For more information on this project and on many others, visit fpri.org. We'll catch you soon.